So let's continue with great Jewish photographs. Today we're going to start off with one on page 94. Um, it's arguably the most famous Gadol picture of recent history. Uh, and it's a, uh, a picture of the great Rosh Hashiva slash Mashkiach, uh, Reb Elia Lapian. Reb Elia Lapian was uh, born in 1876. He died in 1970. And he was a uh, he was Rosh Hashiva in England, and then he came over to Eretz Yisrael um, at one point in his life, later in his life, and he became the Mashkiach and Yeshiva in Kfar Chasidim. In this Yeshiva, they uh, they discovered that they had a rodent problem, which is unfortunately not too uncommon in many institutions. And uh, so, what do you do when you have a rodent problem? You get a cat, right? That's the best way to deal with rodents, right? You get a cat, and the cat generally does its job. So, Rebellion Lapian was walking around the yeshiva building, and he was accompanied by a student, and they were talking and learning. They were discussing learning. And suddenly, um, Rebellion, who was not aware of the fact that there was a rodent problem, and by extension, he wasn't aware of the fact that there was a cat that Yeshiva brought in in order to solve the rodent problem. He suddenly noticed this uh, um, cat, and he asked, whose cat is it? And then the student went and explained the purpose of having the cat in Yeshiva. They had a problem, and they, the cat was brought in. So Rebellia asked, and who feeds her? If she does her job well and scares away the rodents, she won't have anything left to eat. So who's going to feed her? So, meaning if you're going to bring in a cat, you better make sure to feed the cat. She's working for you now. We surely have to provide her with food. Reb Elia then entered his apartment and brought out a bowl of milk, bending over with it to feed the cat. And fortunately, there was a Talmud by the last name of Ravinsky. He walked by at that moment. He just happened to have a camera. Today... You know, everybody has a camera. That's the, the joke about, um, you know, when I, was a, when I was young, my teacher always, and I asked my teacher, you know, what do we need to know long division for, long multiplication? You have a calculator. So she said, well, you're not always going to have a calculator on you. She said, boy, was she proven wrong. So the same thing is true with, uh, with cameras. Like, they never thought, who, you know, you're not going to always have a camera. Oh, yes, you will. But back in the day... Uh, people didn't have cameras, they didn't have phones, they didn't have much of anything. And, uh, and this guy, by the name of Ravinsky, just happened to be walking by with a camera. That's a, today, it's not a chiddish, everybody has a camera, but then it was actually a, a very big act of hashkacha um, and immortalized by taking this picture, this famous photo of Reb Elia concerned with the welfare of all of Hashem's creatures. And now I could show you the picture after waiting for it that long. Um, this is, a, this is Rebelia Lapian. This is like a picture of what he looked like, his face. And this is him bending over and feeding a cat. Can you see that all the way from back there? It's a very, very famous picture. It's always, uh, see it made it even to the cover of my book. Um, and uh, it shows uh, the sensitivity that even great G'daylam, great Torah leaders have towards, towards a regular cat. There's an interesting story that sort of goes with it, um, that there was a photographer from Lakewood who was visiting 
uh, B'nai Brak, maybe about 10, 20 years ago, I don't know, and he, um, and what happened was that he was, he was near the house of Chaim Kanievsky and he had a camera on him and he saw a similar story there. Chaim was bending down and giving a cat uh, a bowl of milk to drink and when Reb Chaim saw that he had taken his picture, he got very upset at him. He didn't want that picture to get out for whatever reason, and he, he insisted that he give him the film. You know, in the old days, they didn't have digital film. It was actually a roll of film, and, um, and he gave it to him. Um, and what happened then was that this person went home, and about 10, 20 years later, he came to visit Reb Chaim with his son, who was turning bar mitzvah, and Reb Chaim immediately recognized him, which is an amazing thing. You know, after, 10, years? Wow. after 10, 20 years later, I don't know, I forgot the exact amount, wow. but um, he recognized him and he started apologizing to him for being you know, so abrupt with him and for taking the film away, wow. and he in turn you know, apologized to Reb Chaim for taking the picture, and it was, uh, it was a long, they spent a lot of time together, and uh, it was very uh, enjoyable uh, on both of their parts. Um, okay, that is one picture that I wanted to share with you today. Um, another picture, we're just going randomly. Um, now, this is a good one. All right, there's a, one of the great rabbis uh, who lived from 1882 to 1968. His name was Eliezer Silver. This is what he looked like. I'm sorry, it's a little distant for you guys in the back. But um, Rebellia Silver was a, uh, he was originally from uh, Lithuania, and he came to America, and he became a great leader in this country, although he's not as well-known as maybe some of his counterparts, like Aaron Cutler or Meisha Feinstein, but he was the head of the Agudas Harabonim and Agudas Yisrael, and um, he did a lot for Klal Yisrael. After the war, he went, he joined uh, the Vat Hatzalah, or he maybe spearheaded the Vat Hatzalah to try to save the Jews that were still in Europe. And after the war, he went, he got an American military uniform. I've seen, there's a, a book I have in my office called The Silver Era, and it shows him wearing actually like an American uniform. Um, very interesting to see like a big gadol wearing an American uniform. And he would go around to the different DP camps and give chizik to people, and then he would uh, go and looking for Jewish children that may have been lost throughout the war around Europe in certain coven, uh, convents you know, that they maybe the parents put them in uh, because they were, um, because they were uh, to save their lives. They gave them over to priests and stuff. Uh, many, many stories about him. But one thing that he, and then he became a rabbi when he came to America, he became the rabbi in, um, in, in Cincinnati, I believe. And um, so uh, one of his uh, things that he was known for was his iconic cylinder hat, it was called, like a top hat, if you could see it's like a, a shiny hat, almost like a magician's hat today, but uh, it was a chashav hat. It was like something that was considered very, uh, very regal and very chashav. And what's interesting is that here in Yeshiva, we had his prize student. The prize student of, of Reb Lazer Silver was a young man by the name of um, Reb Shlema Warman. Reb Shlema Warman was nifter 
maybe uh, eight years ago, seven, eight years ago. And about five years before that, he lived very short, very near yeshiva, and he used to daven in a different shul. That shul that he used to daven and moved further away. So he couldn't go to that shul anymore. So he started davening by us. And he was, uh, um, it was a, a great pickup for us because uh, you know, he was a uh, treasure trove of information. He was a Talmud of Rebbe Silver. He was a Talmud of Rebbe Aaron, um, Feinstein. He was close to Rebbe Aaron Cutler. He was close with Rebbe Zaman Arbach. He knew basically everybody. He was a Talmud of Shlema Hyman. All the great G'daylam in America, uh, he knew very well. And, but he was exceptionally close with this, uh, with Rebbe Silver. And Rebbe Warman told me the story about how he used to give shear in his home to a group of Talmudim, including himself, including Rabbi Warman. Rabbi Warman, by the way, became the Rosh Hashiva of Hank. Ever, anyone hear of Hank? Yebrick Academy of Nassau County. So he was like the Rosh Hashiva. There he gave shear. He wrote many, many svarim, like classic svarim, on, uh, on very, uh, you know, he was a huge, huge Talmud So he was recalling that when he was learning by Blazer Silver, so one time the phone rang and it was the Briskarov. Briskarov, Rabbi Salvechik, Rabbi Salvechik, Salvechik, um, who was calling from Eretz Yisrael, and they were, he, was, he was the Gadladar. So Rabbi Lazar Silver took the phone, but before he took the phone, he put on his cylinder hat, this Chasheva top hat, and he stood the whole time, and he was like standing like, you know, uh, with the utmost of honor and respect. And after, and all the boys that were studying by him were like looking at this, and Rabbi Warman uh, was gutsy, and he said, Rabbi, after, they, after he hung up, he says, why did you stand up the whole time, and why did you put on your, your chasheva cylinder hat? I mean, after all, it's a phone. It's not a, they didn't have Zoom back then. It wasn't a, they couldn't, he couldn't see you. So you're not giving him any honor by wearing your hat, so why did you do it? Good question. So, um, the, Sir Blazer Silver answered, Do you think the honor is for the Briskarov? Does he need my honor? The honor I accorded him was for me. It is obli- obligatory upon me to act this way so as to reinforce my own reverence for the Torah. It's a very important lesson. A lot of times, you know, you're standing up for, a, for, for somebody, for a Rebbe, for a Talmud Chacham, and even if the Rabbi or Tamachacham can't necessarily see you, it's not about giving him covet. It's about you reinforcing your own notions about covet, about Taira, about how you have to honor, you know, and respect Tamachacham. This is a, a classic picture of our blazer silver. You're standing in a shul in Cincinnati, at, in front of the Aaron, and he was a beautiful uh, photo with him with his famous hat. And, uh, and I, I really wanted to get that story into the book because I liked it so much, so I found a nice picture uh, of him to match. Okay, let's do one more, uh, one more picture. Oh, this is a great one. This is for uh, the Sardim in the room. Um, I'm sure we've all heard of the Baba Sali. Right, so the Baba Sali, his name was Rabbi Shal Abu Chatzeir. He lived from 1889 to 1984. He was a Moroccan, Svardic rabbi, and Makobo. And we know that he was a miracle worker. There are whole books written about the miracles that the Babasali uh, performed uh, for people and, and amazing things. 
he grew up in a home in Morocco that was permeated with Torah study and holiness. And he, uh, he goes back many, many generations of Torah scholars and tzaddikim, also known as miracle workers. In 1950, he went up to Yerushalayim, uh, and he returned in 1957 to Morocco. In 1964, he came back to Eretz Yisrael, settled in the southern development town, development town of Netivot, and throngs of people used to go there to Netivot to, uh, to, uh, to visit him and get his aitzas, get his advice, and get his blessings. Um, there was one constant miracle that happened in his house. Anyone know what that was? Constant. It was like a, it was a known thing that he would, um, he would pour arak. Anyone know what arak is? Arak is a very, very uh, strong drink, right? It's a, like a, it's like vodka cubed. It's like really strong, and and he would pour it for guests that came to visit him in honor of an occasion. And when the bottle contained no more liquid, meaning when it ran out. So the Babasali would put a cloth over the bottle and then continue to pour as if from a full bottle and the Iraq never stopped flowing. It's an amazing miracle, right? You, you just imagine if I could just keep spritzing this forever. I don't even know what this is for a whiteboard. I just keep on spraying it forever and ever. For a hundred years it keeps... That's sort of what happened with the, with the Babasali. He would have a bottle of thing. It was almost running out, but he still had a hundred people that he wanted to pour for. So he covered it over with a with the Shemata, because, you know, you can't have an open miracle, it can't be that big a miracle, so by covering it, it sort of lowered, lessened the amount of miracle, and he just kept on pouring and pouring and pouring, and this is a picture of that miraculous pouring. Cool? Okay. So we're, we're really running through this book, I'm gonna, I think we're going to finish today, maybe. Um... Let's do one more, and then we will uh, we will call it a day. Um, now this is let's do this already because this is another picture of Reblazer Silver, that great rabbi that we spoke about before that was so active in communal life in America and rebuilding Tyra. And this, so this is him again, and this is a very very interesting picture. This is the Vice President of the United States. His name was Henry Wallace. The President at that time, anyone know politics at all? Anyone know who the President was during the time of, this was in 1943. Anyone know who the President was in 1943? FDR. Very good, FDR. So, so what happened was, and this is actually very close to this, it was a few days, three days before Yom Kippur, so it's like not so much, we're, we're like almost 13 days before Yom Kippur or something. Um, so, Three days before Yom Kippur, October 6, 1943, um, this was during, as the Nazis were slaughtering millions of European Jews during World War II, most of the world was shamefully silent. However, many Orthodox rabbinical leaders tried valiantly to rescue their brethren. And this was a, a major, it was called the, wa- the, ma- the March on Washington. Um, and it was sponsored by the Vat Hatzalah, and, uh, and basically they had many, many rabbis come and, uh, and march together um, from Union Station in Washington, D.C. to the Capitol building. Basically, the hope was that all these rabbis, hundreds of rabbis, I forgot exactly, maybe 500 rabbis, maybe more, including 
I believe Ramesha Feinstein was there. Um, I think uh, Rabbi Yashaber Salvecha, but they were like more, they weren't front and center. Rabbi Lazar Silva was basically the main rabbi, and the hope was that they'd be able to get um, FDR to come and meet them at the front steps and be able to like, first of all, give him a blessing and then also read a proclamation, um, a rescue memorandum on behalf of the Agudas Rabbanim, beseeching the president to hear the cries of those pleading for their lives and also to say what the mission is and what they, what's necessary to be done on behalf of a European jury. And shamefully, Roosevelt you know, said that he had a different appointment. Really, he was, he was in the White House. He just didn't want to come. He wasn't really interested. I think he was advised by, uh, by certain um, members of his cabinet that were, I think one of them specifically was Jewish. And he said, no, you know, don't listen to these European rabbis. They, you know, they're all, you know, they're orthodox, you know, orthodox rabbis, they don't really count. The, the reform, conservative, they're the ones that, these are, you know, these are not uh, people that you have to listen to. They don't represent many voters in America. It's not, so Roosevelt didn't. It was a very big blow. You know, it's, the, the fascinating thing is that American Jews, um, primarily liberal Jews, but for decades and decades, they worshipped FDR. FDR was like, because of social issues, he was very, you know, he, he did a lot for, uh, um, for social um, things and for providing welfare and other, other initiatives that he had in the country. So he was very beloved. They thought that he was like, you know, in general, the Jews always admired their presidents. Today, we don't really have presidents that we admire so much. We, we sort of, every, everybody just either... You know, if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you just demonize whoever the president is. But in the old days, the president really was somebody that you all felt loyalty towards, a certain degree of, uh, of reverence and covet for. He represents the country. We should really still feel that, but unfortunately it became such a polarized world and country that, uh, you know, that the, the position has been greatly demeaned by, I think, the people that held the position. But... Even American Jews always, you know, held FDR as being, like, amazing, but he was really horrible for the Jews. And we know today that he had, as much as they said that they didn't know what was going on in Europe and they weren't aware of the concentration camps, and what was, we know that that's not true. If you go to Yad Vashem and all the Jewish Holocaust museums, uh, you would find, you know, real... They had pictures. They had, like, planes took pictures of... Of, of Auschwitz, they knew exactly where the concentration camp, where the uh, gas chambers were. They could have bombed the railroad tracks that, that were bringing the Jews by the thousands every day to, into Auschwitz. And they just basically didn't do anything for whatever the political reasons that they didn't do uh, something was, but they didn't. And um, so he came and he, the vice president at least came out and a few senators and uh, it was a historic uh, march on Washington, uh, and this was a picture of Reblazer Silver himself reading the proclamation, and you see the Vice President Wallace um, you know, looking on. You don't really know what he's thinking, but, but basically that was uh, a very, very important, uh, important thing. What we see from, from you know, this is that, that, there's, that Torah leaders are not just leaders by virtue of the fact that they know halacha and they know how to learn a, a page of Gemara, but a real Torah leader is somebody that is able to not only uh, lead in the religious sense, but also 
that they lead in a political sense and they lead in a, they're able to understand the needs of their time and try to step up to the plate and, and do whatever they can to, to do what, what's necessary. The greatest Torah leaders, Laser Silver and Aaron Cutler and, and, and many others, they were the ones that they did, they worked tirelessly. They took trains on Shabbos, on Yom Kippur, if they had a, 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 like a 1% chance to go into Washington and meet a senator to try to petition them to do something about what was going on in Europe, to get food into the DP camps, to get whatever was necessary to be done. It wasn't so much the American Jewish leaders. A lot of them you know, were not religious and they might have gotten a lot of, a lot of Covered, they were, you know, everybody knew their name. I'm, they were, I'm not going to say who they were, but, you know, they're famous, polit- famous figureheads. But when it came time, when push came to shove and it came for them to, like, spend their political capital on doing something to save the Jews in Europe, they did very, very little, if, if not nothing. And, but the terror leaders were the opposite. The terror leaders really did everything in their power to, to go and to do, to march on Washington, to try to lobby any politician, to raise money uh, in order to send, uh, you know, to send food, to send packages into the camps, into the DP camps, the displaced persons camp after the war. The, a, a religious leader is, is somebody that is knowledgeable in Tyra and at the same time is also active politically when the time calls for it. That doesn't mean that he should be busy all day with local politicians and, you know, shaking. That's not what I mean. But if when, when, when times call for it, like, for example, right now, I don't know if many of you are following what's going on in the news, but there's a, in New York State, there, uh, there's a very big threat to the yeshiva system. Um, they're threatening to, uh, you know, especially Hasidish yeshivas, there, there's really a, a very big push to, uh, to not... Uh, give them any federal funding because they uh, they don't teach English, you know, either at all or on the level that that the government expects of them. And the government doesn't just want to deal, you know, put their hands in the yeshiva in the Hasidic system, but really yeshivas across the board. They're going to start being able to determine how many hours we we have our studies, what we're teaching, what type of teachers we're hiring. They might be the ones that are going to start hiring the teachers. And it might be a woman teacher that's not sneistic. It might be a, 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 a teacher that's not, that has a different lifestyle, if you know what I'm saying, and that will be a very bad, uh, you know, influence on, on the children that he's supposed to be teaching. And it's very dangerous. If, and right now, this is being decided right now as we speak. What happened until now? Like, we had, we had such a, like, uh, what, what happened? Like, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what happened. There was, uh, it started with a disgruntled chassid. Like, uh, he went off the derech, I think. He, he basically... Uh, I think I saw a video that was sent out. Yeah. yeah. So he, he is very angry. He grew he up... He chass- did, did he, she wanted to do a good job teaching. Right. He was very, he's very upset. And, you know, he feels that he, you know, he was sent to chassidish yeshiva. He got no English. He had no, uh, no secular studies. And then he was at a disadvantage when it came to getting a job and yes. getting a, and he felt and he had tightness, you know, maybe, you know, on a certain level, I understand what he's saying, but, but he went and he took it to another level. He started a whole organization and basically the, the, the whole uh, mission of this organization is to undo, the, to dismantle pretty much the Hasidish yeshivas and all the yeshivas that do not provide an acceptable English 
you know, English. What do they call them with, like yeshivot? I'm sure there are other, like, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what examples there are. I'm sure there are other, like, uh, learning institutions that aren't, like, English stuff. There could be other right. stuff like that. So. Right. Yeah, it might be it might be Catholic school, right. private schools. It might be uh, you know Muslim Catholics, Muslim uh, private private schools. Right. So it really it has very wide reaching uh, you know implications, and uh, it's a frightening thought because they this is very close to passing. And then to make matters worse, last Sunday I think on nine eleven. The New York Times, you know, they had nothing else to put on their front cover on 9-11 because, you know, it didn't happen in New York, did it? But uh, the, uh, they put a whole scathing article against the Hasidish issue. It's like a huge article. I didn't read it, but I heard a lot about it. And uh, they, they ripped apart the Hasidish uh, yeshivas and now there's no English or very little English. They don't take it seriously and the kids are, you know, doing this and that. But even in the article, it shows how the, at least, you know, public school kids versus Hasidish kids in these yeshivas, they're basically on the same level in terms of their scholar, you know, scholastic uh, abilities, in terms of whatever national tests, you know, you know these uh, standardized tests are. They're pretty much the same. But, you know, they explained that away in the article, I think. But the point is that the rabbis and the, the leaders of, of our community, they're the ones that are fighting this battle. You can't expect other people to be fighting the battle. People like conservative reform, they don't care. They don't, you know, but the, the Torah leaders, the Rosh Hashivas, are the ones that are front and center because all of these issues, you know, religious issues, uh, social issues, uh, anything that's relevant to Jewish life is something that the rabbis are really supposed to spearhead because they have the ability to, to see things clearly, to see things from a Torah perspective. And this is something that has very, very, uh, an old history of having G'dayli Yisrael. It goes back really to biblical times when you know, Meshra Rabbeinu is not just the political leader of Klai Yisrael, he was also the Torah leader. He was the, the, the very same person that got the Torah from Hashem at Har Sinai, was the one that was leading us in front of Parai, leading us through the desert, leading us you know, against all of the, the various uh, challenges that we had you know, throughout our early history. And this is, and then it carried over to Yeshua. Yeshua fought the battles of Eretz Yisrael, and he was also the Torah leader. So it's not like we can't uh, separate the ability to be a Torah leader from the political uh, leadership as well. They they're sort of supposed to be fused as one, and they inform and inspire each other. Meaning the the Torah inspires the political decisions, and the political decisions are are informed by the Torah and. And that is the ideal um, in terms of who we look to for leadership. We look to the Torah leaders, and, uh, and Baruch Hashem, throughout history, we've always had great Torah leaders to guide us and to, uh, and to make sure that we're always on, on the right track, and uh, whatever is necessary to do, whether it's in the base medrash or it's in the halls of, of, of power, uh, there you would find the, same, the very same personalities, the Torah personalities, that, uh, that are the ones to, to shepherd Klai Yisrael uh, throughout this uh, journey of Gaulus.